Hi, welcome to the Freudcast. When times are hard, it's those with the least who feel it the most. With the cost of living skyrocketing at the time of recording, safety nets are invaluable. St Mungo's is definitely one of those. Founded in 1969 by a group of committed activists distressed by the rising number of London's homeless, St Mungo's is now England's largest provider of homelessness services, providing a safe, dry place to sleep for more than 3,000 people every night. In 2021 alone, it helped more than 30,000 people. Freud's Zulam Elamogo caught up with the charity's Rebecca Sycamore, Executive Director of Strategy and Development. In this episode of the Freudcast, the acute effects of climate change on homeless people, the heroic efforts to house rough sleepers during the COVID lockdowns, and what it will actually take to end homelessness here are discussed, which is a very long way from St Mungo's humble origins. And why do you think um, climate change and homelessness has not been reported up to this point? I mean, I don't really know. We're we're working really hard to end rough sleeping. It's a really important goal um, and the pandemic meant that you know we were able to bring many people off the streets um, there has been a lot of focus on you know what we do next how we use the learning from the pandemic and I think you know maybe we've been so focused on that that we haven't necessarily thought beyond that but also I think that um, homeless people's voices are not in the conversation about climate change. Um, some of my colleagues um, asked their clients about climate. You know, they went to kind of meetings with their clients and they you know, raised the question and said, you know, what do you think? And I think our clients told us that they feel quite excluded from the conversation. They feel a sense of shame because they, you know, they, the way that they, they live means that they maybe are using single-use plastic, that you know, they're not able to cut, cut meat out of their diet, they're not able to maybe live a vegan lifestyle. And they feel that that is kind of things that are happening for other people. People and they're, you know, struggling to kind of, you know, maybe they've moved into accommodation for the first time after a few years on the streets and they're, you know, they're struggling to deal with their mental health problems, maybe struggling to pick up their lives, maybe, you know, struggling to navigate, you know, all kinds of systems, benefit systems, health systems. And they're, they're feeling that, that that's, you know, all of that is really, really important to them, but that they can't find a way into a conversation about climate change. And it feels something that is, is not necessarily, you know, that, that, that they aren't able to access and that sense of you know, stigma and, and shame because they're not, you know, they're not able to make changes easily into their lives. Uh, at the same time, I think they, they're, like, there's massive, they're, they're interested, they want to kind of, they want to get involved, obviously, you know, there are, um, everybody that I, we talk to, our clients, you know, kind of have all kinds of amazing ideas about everything. So there's a rich source of people who could, could help us on this journey. Um, but we're not, we're, not, we're not listening to them, we're not involving their voices, we're not hearing their voices, we're not involving them. You spoke a bit about the work you did during the pandemic. Can you please tell us about that? Yeah, so St Mungo's is a, a, a provider of services. And so during the pandemic, when um, the then Secretary of State, say, the kind of government asked that everybody who was on the streets or who was in kind of shared accommodation be moved into self-contained accommodation. And I think a lot of people know that the hotels were made available. Um, we ended up running a lot of hotels in the areas where we work. So in London, but also in places like Bristol, um, we were kind of working in, in hotels. We took over hotels. I think we, you know, we turned hotels around and set them up very, very quickly that first weekend. And lots of my, lots 
of my colleagues went to um, change their jobs to go and work in the hotels to support people. Lots of our volunteers were really important in helping kind of um, sort out food, but also helping to support people. Uh, and so that became like a massive piece of work. But also at the same time, I should say that all of our existing services, many of our existing services stayed open. So as well as all the hotels, we were also keeping safe a lot of people who were already living in our accommodation and making sure that they you know, were able to kind of navigate this, this world of mask wearing and social distancing and not being able to go outside. So our staff had like a huge responsibility to, to keep those services running, but to help people who were feeling isolated and vulnerable, you know, whose support services might have gone digital and they didn't have any much experience of using computers, you know, and helping them kind of navigate this, this world that we found ourselves in. So lots and lots of new services, getting people off the streets, at the same time, massive focus on keeping our existing client groups safe and keeping as many services as possible running, albeit in a different way. So across the whole organisation, it was, you know, I think a really significant kind of time of, of change and working differently and really thinking through what it means for our services to, to have to run in a kind of COVID secure way. Uh, you speak with such passion. And um, I know St. Mungo's well at this point, and everyone I've met is very passionate about this, this area. It's not something people get into for the money <laughs> or for the fame. No, no. Why, why does this matter so much to you? And, and how long have you been involved with St. Mungo's and how did that all begin? I think this matters to me because of, you know, the kind of society that I want to live in, but also because, you know, for me, thinking about climate change has really only been something that's been, that's been really in my kind of in my day-to-day -day working life for the last 12 or 18 months as we've started working on an um, environmental strategy and the environmental goals for my own organisation. And I think it's a real privilege to learn about something and to understand something. But it's also, you know, I have... Uh, a ton of colleagues who, as you have said, are incredibly passionate and well-informed, and they have been amazing at, you know, cajoling, pushing, supporting, helping, suggesting, you know, working with me as I, I draft this strategy. And so I really, you know, I want to get it right for them. It's really important that our organisation embraces this, mm. but that, that my colleagues know that we are taking this seriously and that we're really, we get it, we understand why this matters to them, why it matters to society. Um, we are an organisation that, you know, is about making a difference to very vulnerable people's lives and that therefore it is only fitting that we also care about a wider sustainability agenda, that we, you know, that we live our values, really. So that's why it matters. Mm. Um, I've worked in homelessness all of my career. I started out um, trained to be a social worker, actually up here. I was at Stirling University where I trained to be a social worker and then uh, went back to uh, went back to London and worked uh, originally with St Mungo's in a kind of looking up, you know, looking after property that people who had been um, homeless and had been um, had had poor, very poor mental health were living in, kind of helping them to uh, maybe find ways to move on to kind of um, adjust to being in in a community in housing. So that was the kind of start of my career, and that that job was at St Mungo's, and then uh, I've worked in homelessness in lots of different capacities and then um, back in 2014 I came back to St Mungo's um, following a merger and it, it's it felt a bit full circle um, <laughs> I'm not sure I ever planned to come back I'm not sure it was on the list it wasn't you know it wasn't on the bucket list that I would you know I would be back at St Mungo's but um, I there's just something about the organization you know you said everybody is really passionate it's that's definitely true you know it's a very 
the level of services that we provide, the volume of services that we provide, you know, over 120 different services, you know, there is something very special about that. You know, mm. it's not necessarily a sensible way of setting up things, you know. Um, it's a lot of different products, if you want to look at it in that way from a marketing side. Um, but it's an organisation that really, I think, leads with its heart and really, um, it really matters to people across the organisation that we make a difference and that we, um, I think are always trying to learn we're not perfect we get things wrong but you know hopefully we pick ourselves up and really and really try and learn and try and listen and try and make progress and I think that's kind of part of what makes it really special to work there you know to me homelessness is just a it's a ethical a moral aberration it's a, it's a huge failing of society where there is so much why do you think we allow this to happen why do you think it persists despite the fact if you go and ask almost any individual person, do you think this is okay? They would say, absolutely not. We need to do something. Yet the problem persists. What do you think the issue is? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of, there's lots of systemic reasons. So there's lots of things that, you know, end up with the, con- with, with the consequences, homelessness, but the, but the, the policy or the, the institutional failing is, is not within the purview of homelessness. So it's kind of a, you know, people end up there. Mm. It's not, you know, it, it, and so it's hard sometimes to come up with a, you know, the policy solution within homelessness because it's, it's often not about that. So if you think about people leaving prison, um, you know, especially after a short sentence, mm. you know, maybe they don't have a lot of wraparound support, you know, and, and maybe they don't have a place to go and they, they end up on the streets um, and it's very hard for them to then you know rebuild their confidence get, in, get into work and do any of the things that you know enable them to to take a different path it's not impossible obviously people do it all the time mm. but it, it's tough it's tough you know it's not it's not an easy journey it's not an easy thing for people to go through so there's, there's something about the fact that you know the, the the amount of um other bits of the system that you have to get in place in order to kind of really end rough sleeping particularly and homelessness even more so beyond that um, it, is, it is a lot of levers across kind of mm. governments and systems and we're not particularly good at working across you know there's definitely particularly I think the learning from um, the pandemic and everyone in and all of the efforts to get people off the streets you know across across England and also in Scotland there's definite learning here about how we can work I think there's much more sense that homelessness and health are really you know entwined in you know and, and kind of connected and that you know it is you know there are the the life expectancy of people you know significantly affected by homelessness the health the quality of their health what is the life expectancy oh i think it's something like for men it's something like 45 mm. compared to a general population which is significantly yeah. and for women it's, it's lower yeah. isn't yeah, it it's like 43 yeah. 42 like that. yeah it's definitely you know it's, it's in your 40s you know i'm 15 nobody you know it is it, you know the life expectancy is less than my life now for, for, for women. An average life expectancy is about 75, something 75, like that. 80, right? It's so it's cutting off a good 30 yeah, years. Yeah, and, it's, and, and that's, you know, that's, really, that's really shocking. And I think the mm. pandemic kind of showed us the poor health of people who are, you know, who are experiencing homelessness and rough sleeping you know, on, a, on a long-term basis. And so I think that there's you know, definite movement around the health aspect and the health systems, but there's a lot that we need to do around health, right? You know, that's physical health. What about mental health? What about people who are experiencing addiction? You know, there's a lot of, lot of big systems that need to move and, and need to flex to find a solution for, for some of the homelessness um, for people experiencing homelessness so there's a lot that needs to happen it's kind of it touches a lot of different systems and I, I definitely think that is one of the reasons that it is it's difficult to mm. to address because you know even when we 
you know, during the pandemic, we got people off the streets, we got a lot of people off the streets and into hotels, things like the, you know, the people weren't being evicted, the universal credit uplift was kind of stopping, you know, people who were not working or losing their jobs from ending up on the streets. Mm. But there were still people, there was still flow onto the streets, people arriving and rough sleeping, you know, becoming rough sleep, you know, experiencing rough sleeping for the first time. You know, there were people who, who it was really hard the hotels weren't the right environment for them. They needed more support. They needed a different, a different solution. That that solution didn't work for everybody. So even with all of that resource and all of that effort, we still weren't necessarily able to completely stop people either arriving on the streets for the first time or, or remaining there. So it is really difficult. And some of the some of it is is personal. It's people's personal, you know, trauma or the level of you know what they've experienced and you know how long and how difficult it's been. Some of it is systemic, some of it's policy decisions. Yeah. It's, it's a whole bundle of stuff and, and it definitely it definitely crosses over into different systems and I think partly that's why it's so difficult. I wonder if you think there's a, f- um, a mental accounting problem when it comes to homelessness or a, a psychological framing issue whereby policymakers and politicians see it as an issue to win, basically with an ending, mm-hmm. and the ending being that you get the homeless person into a home, uh-huh. full stop, uh-huh. it's done, it's over. When really, it's, it's a lot more complex than that, right? And, and homelessness, uh, I mean, one of the definitions I was exposed to through working with St. Mungo's was that it also includes rough sleeping, it includes short-term lets in some um, uh, accounts. It's a lot more nuanced yeah. than people might think. So therefore, I, I want to ask you if you really think we can end this because it is something people can fall into as well as be rescued from. Uh-huh. It's not just you're in a house now. Yeah, yeah, Good yeah, luck. Yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. I think, I think so. I mean, I, I really think that like, one of the opportunities is is to is to find a way to to focus on prevention and recovery so people moving on you know yeah it's not here's a house you'll find now but really giving people the support they need at the right time to kind of make to give them the time to move on but at the same time as we're directly intervening you know it's it's a system problem if you like which is you have people coming into the homelessness system and not enough people leaving the homelessness system and so therefore the numbers go up and if you if you can prevent people you know, even you know, even like a day before you need to have your first incident of rough sleeping. If we could provide, if we could prevent that, and provide people with a different, you know, different, a different direction and support at that point, then that would be you know a massive achievement. And the more, and then you know, edging people gradually upstream. You know, the things which are about you know child poverty and benefit systems. You know, way before people get close to homelessness, maybe you know outside the scope of homelessness solution but not outside the scope of what society should be doing but the idea that you know often what happens is you have to move money away from the long-term option to do the immediate Mm. and actually I think maybe climate change starts to show us that actually you can't do that you have to do the long-term stuff and you have to do the stuff that's now and I think you know maybe a change of thinking about how we how we think about making policy or how we think about what government responsibilities for you know you set a short-term goal but actually maybe it's okay for a government to set a long-term goal as well actually we all need to set long-term goals around climate change right you know i know that 2030 is not that far away but it's definitely outside the period of the current government and we don't know you know what will happen after that yeah we're still setting targets to get there we're still doing the long-term stuff as well as we're doing the immediate stuff and i think 
you know, is there a shift in policy making, you know, because of how we need to think about climate change that maybe gets us to think, actually, it's okay to think short term and long term at the same time and to set those targets and not to, you know, sacrifice one for the other because that won't work in, in lots of scenarios. Yeah. My final question is about what individuals can do to make a difference to climate change because um, certainly from my time at LSE, I... Um, spoke to so many students that felt um, really quite affected by the amount of homelessness in that particular area of central London, um, but didn't really know how to engage with it. So therefore, they did what they felt was good, maybe just give them bananas, you know, um, give them money if they asked for, things in that immediate, uh, you know, that, that seemed urgent at that point. And sometimes it's hard to know how to engage because yeah. people could be feeling addictions. It's, it's confusing. What is one thing people can do to uh, help? I mean, I, there's never going to be one thing, right? I mean, <laughs> we've known each other for a whole, the whole 17 minutes of this podcast and you know <laughs> that I'm not going to come up with one thing. I think one important thing is to look somebody in the eye and acknowledge their existence as a human being and, mm. you know, nod and smile and make eye contact. As even, if you, even if what you're doing is walking past because you're not going to give them money or they're not asking for money, they're just there. If, if they're looking at you, then try and acknowledge them and smile. And, you know, that, that's really important. Um, it's a very small thing, but it, it's, it's hugely, I think, significant because I think, you know, maybe we all need to see people on our streets as people as much as possible, as often as possible, if we want to, to build support for this. And then I think it's about, um, you know, maybe if people are really interested, um, understanding how they can get involved in things in their local communities, volunteering, getting involved with local homelessness charities, there is a, a, a website and an app and a phone line called Streetlink, whereby if you see somebody who is sleeping on the streets, you can get in touch with Streetlink and tell them about that person and they will do all they can to join up that person with the right help from whatever local resources are available so that they can um, they can you know get a route off the streets. So you can do that. And it is, you know, if you're worried about somebody, if you see somebody sleeping in your communities, that's a it's a really important thing that you can do. Um, you can you know give people lots of details. You can you can tell the person if you've got into speaking conversations with them, you can say, oh, how would it be if I phone Streetlink for you? You know, you don't, it's not you're not sneaking around behind their back, you're you know, you're helping them. So you know, so that's a really important and powerful thing that that everybody can do. Thank you to Rebecca, to Zulam, and to you for listening. You can hear more than 30 other episodes of the Freudcast wherever you normally get your podcasts. Also, keep up to date with everything Freud is doing. Find us at Inside Freud on Instagram and on LinkedIn as well. I'm Matt Barbette. Bye for now. <laughs>